Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you have not already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show. I'm so happy with all that is available now for people who become supporters who help to keep this on the air and help keep it a public service, actually to be able to make sure that it continues reaching so many people. And now that we have surpassed 2 million listens, I really want you to partner with me to help make sure that just the manufacturing costs are covered so that it can continue. Thank you so much. And so for today, I am so excited to be able to say that you get to hear from Alexandra Stain. She is amazing. She has a doctorate and is a writer and an educator specializing in the social psychology of ideological extremism and other dangerous social relationships. She's currently an honorary research fellow at the University of Sussex. Dr. Stain offers programs and materials to help people understand how to identify and protect themselves and others from recruitment to cultic or extremist groups. She also studies and teaches about positive social relationships, small d democracy, she calls it, inclusivity and healthy social and personal networks that can oppose these dangerous relationships. She's also going to talk about the things that she studied and the things that she experienced being a former member of what she calls a supposedly left-wing political cult and how she didn't fit the profile of a cult follower. She's independent, feisty, a critical thinker. And so what does that mean? What do we learn from that and what's possible in these environments? You can find more about her work at www.alexandrastein.com. Here's Alexandra now. I am so delighted to have Alexandra here with me today, and I would love for you to spend a few moments introducing yourself to the listeners, and then we'll start talking. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Well, just briefly, um, so I got into this field because I had 10 long and generally very boring years in a supposedly left-wing political cult that was run out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I ended up there for a long time, uh, despite my accent, which is just a mishmash now of several continents. And when I got out of that group, I sort of banged my head against the wall, as one does. I couldn't work out how this had happened to me, that I was not my stereotype of who gets into a cult. You know, I was a kind of feisty young woman, critical thinker, independent, you know, how did that happen to me? And that question set me off on my studies after a long and tortuous process. Um, now I make it sound easy, but it wasn't. And then had to include a lot of recovery from the cult and rebuilding life. And well, before I went to university, I first wrote a book about my cult experience. And that was in a way part of my recovery. Because I've always been a bit of a writer and wanted to be a writer. And so I also got back that writer part of me. 
And I told this crazy story that in that book reads like a kind of thriller. It's a bit of a murder mystery in a funny way. Anyway, when I was done with that book, and so I'd sort of a little bit understood the experience a bit in the round, I then was somewhat bullied by my friends to go to university, I think mostly because I was boring them so much with rabbiting on about cults and all the stuff I was reading. And I kind of got lucky, partly because of Yanya Lalich, actually, and I want to give her a little public credit here, because I had found her as a fellow ex-political cult member, which back then, and I got out in 91, so this was before the internet, and I had found her through a footnote in Steve Hassan's book, Combating Health Mind Control, and I picked up the telephone and contacted her in California. Anyway, long story, we sort of became friends and colleagues, and when she was editing the Cultic Studies Journal, she did a women's issue, which is quite an important piece of work. I encourage people to search it out. And she invited me to submit a piece to that journal. And I had never really had anything published. I didn't know how to write. I mean, I knew how to write, but I didn't know how to write in that kind of journal way. But I went off and I found six women because I had been a back, backing up, I had been a mother in a cult, uh, and I had two children in a cult. So I was interested in that experience, and I found six women who had been mothers in cults of the various cults, and I just went and interviewed them with my notepad and my pen, and wrote a little piece about their experiences. And it was really because Yanya published that essay in that journal that enabled me to get into university. I won't tell that whole long story, but it did. It was a foot into the next stage of my career. And also that piece, which I think was one of the very first pieces done on mothers and therefore kids in cult, has now, I kind of rolled it into my last book, Terror, Love and Brainwashing, in the chapter on families. So it's kind of been a, (laughs) it's been a really a piece of work that's had longevity, but also helped me in my career in understanding cults. And then since then, I've done, you know, I do a little bit of counseling, though I'm not a therapist, but just because of the absence of people who understand this. And I do a lot of various bits of public education and media work. And I'm currently a trustee of a small British charity called the Family Survival Trust. And we're lobbying for a change in the law and we do some education and we do a, have a support group that's been going for quite a while now, several years. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty busy with <laughs> with this work. Yes, of course. I, you know, come across your name a lot and we've met and we've seen each other at conferences. I would like to be able to go back in person soon. I don't know when that will be, but I have a lot of respect for your work and also I think for people who are doing that painful revelatory work and are exposing themselves to themselves and then exposing that to the world for the benefit of others, for education, for prevention, for understanding, for compassion. And so I think there's something very powerful about digging in, looking, and knowing that's a hard thing to do, and then writing about it and talking about it 
I know the sting decreases over time, but it's still not an not an easy process. And when when you talk about you, you mentioned it was interesting, you use the word supposedly. So your group was a supposedly left wing group. There's so many groups that purport to be something they're not. And uh, same thing in relationships, etc. And I'm glad that you use that term because there are a lot of people who think they're joining something or getting involved in something that turns out to not be that way at all. So what did you find out when you were doing your self-exploration about the feisty Alexandra and how she could get involved in something that would take away her very uh, already formed critical thinking? Well, um, also, I just want to say a couple of comments about what you just said, you know, that it's so important and there's so much more coming out now that we bear witness to these experiences because otherwise nobody knows. You know, <laughs> cults are secretive and they make people silent through fear. So those of us who are in a position to do so, and a lot of people are not in that position, those of us who have the resources and various other kinds of assets, so to speak, that allow us to do so, it's the only way this story gets out into the world. But it does come with a stigma. You know, people still consider, generally speaking, that one is in some way flawed to have gotten into a cult. I mean, we're all flawed, but, you know, we have special flaws, us people who get into cults. And they even say that about people born or raised in cults who didn't join anything. They just, you know, were born into it. So there is this stigma, uh, which is problematic. In terms of my first book and what, as you say, I found out about myself, I mean, that first book I had not come across a lot of the literature. I was very much relying on Lifton's eight criteria, which I sort of sprinkle through the book at the relevant moments. But I suppose what I learned was this was an organization that was totally not what it said it was. And in fact, it was run by this violent man who wanted to control others for whatever complex reasons. And they were complex in this group. Um, I don't normally talk about this, but, and this is unproven, but there's, I believe that it was possibly a kind of government agent provocateur operation against the left in Minneapolis. There's just a lot of interesting circumstantial evidence to that. We don't really know. But whatever it was, the guy who ran it was classic cult leader. He was charismatic and authoritarian, and he controlled every part of our lives. And to be honest, I did no political work during that time, with a tiny exception of working with the African National Congress in South Africa, trying to do a couple things. And that was because of my connections, because I'm originally South African and my family, my father was South African. And my father and sister were working for the ANC. So that's kind of what I brought to the party. It really wasn't, and I was allowed to do it because it looked good. It made him look good. But I was for 10 years totally depoliticized, whereas beforehand I had been really quite active in the Bay Area left in San Francisco. And I came from a political background and I'm still a very political person. So yes, it took me and all the others very much out of any useful activity. And we spent a lot of time baking quite good bread and writing rather bad computer programs. They weren't all bad, but <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of what the first book 
got me to and unraveling what this organization was, because as I'm sure your listeners will understand, when you're in a cult, you only understand this tiny little piece, or you don't even understand it. You perceive and have exposed to a tiny piece of the organization. It's only when you got to get out and you can talk to other people and do research that you can get a much bigger picture of what was actually going on, such as we were covering up the leader having killed somebody, which I didn't know that's what I was doing, but in fact I was. At the end of the book, I kind of then still had this question, well, but why? You know, I still couldn't understand what had happened. I mean, I understood per Lifton's eight criteria, but I didn't feel satisfied that was enough of an answer. I wanted to understand really what had happened in a way in my brain. That's what led me to the my PhD studies, well, first a master's and then a PhD. And by the end of the PhD, I sort of felt like, yeah, I kind of get it now. <laughs> you know, as you know, there's different people doing different work on this, and it doesn't mean I get the whole answer to all this great thing, but I answer the question to my satisfaction. And part of that is using the work of many other people. Well, it's definitely part of that. We all stand on the shoulders of people who've done work before us. And we add a little, we add a little stone to the pile. You know, I hope I've done that. And I, I think I have. I feel confident I've added. And I hope other people will then add their pieces to this complex phenomena that we are trying to understand and prevent and help people who have suffered from it. It's very interesting. You know, trying to understand it all. I feel like we have to go back into t- in time to see ourselves on an evolutionary basis, the need to connect, the need to believe, the, the need for safety, and how much we're influenceable and to what degree and at what time in our lives, et cetera, and how we were raised. There's so many factors. So I think having any kind of clarity is not an easy thing. Just in general, understanding it in terms of looking at it sociologically and um, in terms of our evolution and the needs that we have and that are quite primal. And at the same time, the personalities of the people we were interacting with and the time in our lives and, 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 and our self-esteem and all of it. And the need to do something that feels good and important. And that sometimes that's just enough to get people hooked because it feels good and important. And I remember actually visiting San Francisco years ago, and I came across people who uh, were in Lyndon LaRouche's group. And I remember when you were talking about not doing anything political, I remember asking these fresh-faced young people um, how they spent their days. And they said, oh, we do this. And they're standing on a street corner. And I said, and then what? Well, they're sort of thinking. (laughs) And one of them said, well, tonight my job is to sharpen all the pencils. And then there was this sort of silence. And then another one said, and I think it's my turn to water the plants And it wasn't beyond that. There wasn't something happening. There was just free labor to keep the machine going, right? But there was no production of anything or any change. But just, I think, also just the satisfaction for the leader to know that people were giving up their lives to 
sharpened pencils at till four in the morning until they were quite perfect. And I remember this girl saying, oh, I don't think I'll sleep tonight because sometimes I don't get the pencils quite perfect. He gets up in the middle of the night and checks them. And so it's a lot of, you know, all dressed up with nowhere to go. Well, as Hannah Arendt says, and I quote her constantly because she has a, such a deep understanding of these things. It's or it just constantly, I find it remarkable. Uh, I'm not saying she's my guru, but she was a remarkable person. And she describes, you use the word machine. I think she uses the word engine, that you have to keep people in this engine of activity. Again, those of us who've been in cults will understand that well. You can't let up. And in fact, when you do let up, that's when people get a little bit of space and they might have time to think. And that's very dangerous. So you have to have feed this engine. It's often with busy work, the pencil sharpening, but dangerously it can then have other kinds of work. You know, and we have to look only at the Holocaust as an example of something that wasn't simply busy work. Or let's look at the Unification Church, you know, where they've got uh, weapons manufacturing and huge influence in the politics of several major countries, including the US. You know, then it gets beyond busy work, but you have what Ben Zablocki calls these deployable agents who will do what you tell them. And if that involves lobbying Congress, that's what they'll do. If that involves sharpening pencils, that's what they'll do. But you have to keep the thing busy so that people can't have time to reconstitute and reintegrate their dissociated brains. Essence of brainwashing is dissociation. And when you're dissociated, you cannot think critically, no matter how critical a thinker you may have been before or after, you can't think critically when you're dissociated, you're by, by definition. So I find that a very helpful anchor to looking at how do all these methods that all us different scholars talk about, you know, whether it's sleep deprivation, nutritional deprivation, controlling relationships, controlling all these other things, they're all trying to work to creating a dissociated follower. You know, I mean, Hannah Arendt is, uh, yes, people need to check out her work. I'm so glad you mentioned her name. I haven't yet mentioned her name on the podcast. I mean, she's very, very wise. She has a lot that she has shared with the world. But at the same time, yeah, there's a lot that's come from very dark place. And I think about that when people ask me why I care about this. And I think it's interesting psychologically. I mean, that's sort of the the micro and I like to be able to help when needed in these situations. But the macro is, I see just even in my own family history, what what it can lead to. And when people are not able to stay focused, when they're in any kind of altered state, I picture that the whole movement is sort of gliding on ice, like there's nothing stopping, there's nothing to hold on to to wake people up along the way necessarily. Um, and it will just keep going as long as someone is just sort of icing the path, making it all too easy to slide in a certain direction. Um, and it all depends upon who's leading it and what for what purpose. I, I remember talking to a man who woke up 
he said, when he was in QAnon, when he is this pacifist who suddenly was chanting for them to hang Hillary Clinton in the middle of Times Square. And he caught his reflection in a building window and he didn't recognize that person. And he could see the look on his face and he was so charged up and whipped into a froth. And it terrified him actually when he saw his own reflection, but that he could see how much that he was susceptible to it, again, given so many different circumstances or the right set of circumstances or however you'd call it. So what did you find out? I don't mean to, um, I know a PhD program is a long and arduous program. And so I'm telling you to sort of get to the end and tell us what you learned uh, without us needing to do the work to get there. So I feel bad about asking, but um, what did you find? In my PhD work, I used the work of Lifton, of Hannah Arendt, and then of John Bowlby, who is the originator of attachment theory, which is an evolutionary theory of relationships between people, really. And he talked about how the need for attachment, which starts in infancy, is as important um, as sort of not a drive, but a need as the need for food, shelter, sex, and so forth, that as humans we have evolved to need to be attached to others. And the reason for that is for the purpose of protection. So if the baby doesn't attach to their parent, they're not going to be protected from, you know, the metaphorical lions on the savannah. So it's an evolved characteristic. So we You know, in the cult world, we hear a lot of this talk, oh, so-and-so joined because they needed to belong to something. And it's often said in a derogatory way, like that person was somehow needy. And I kind of feel like, well, we're human beings. We've evolved to need to belong. Those who don't have that characteristic probably are suffering from some kind of disorder. It's a healthy thing to need to be attached to others. And also we have this illusion, especially in America, of, you know, independence. You know, you don't need anyone else, right? Well, we we do. All of us need other people. But we need safe relationships. And this is really the key, is understanding what is a safe or good enough, safe enough relationship, or a way I like to look at it, a predictable relationship, where you kind of know that person, even if they're not perfectly secure, as we call it in attachment theory, they're good enough. They may be a bit distant. They may be a bit clingy, but you kind of know that's how that person is. So you can sort of adapt to that. But there's a type of relationship that is very, I'd say, dangerous and difficult and has bad outcomes. And that's what we call a disorganized attachment. And that's where the person to whom one is attached is frightening or frightened. But what is coming from that person is fear signals. In a secure, just to back up, in a secure relationship, if one, let's say a child and a parent, if the child is feeling safe, they can be a little bit away from the parent playing happily. But they're looking to the parent knowing that they're close by. And if something happens, if they fall and bump their knee or they have some fearful or painful or threatening experience, they're going to run to mom or dad who's going to comfort them. And in that, we have a 
homeostatic process of managing our internal arousal hormones, the cortisols. When you bump your knee, your cortisols go up. When you go to mom or dad, they get, they comfort you, which brings up your internal, your endogenous opioids, which make you feel calm and safe, which brings down your cortisol arousal. And then after you feel safe and calm for a while, you're kind of done and you want to go play again, get a little more excitement again. And that's a kind of rubber band effect of the secure parent and the securely attached child, keeping that in some kind of balance between excitement, which can also be fear, and comfort. And there's various types of attachment. As I said, the secure is the optimal one, but you also have a couple of other ones which are not perfect, but they're predictable. But the difficult one is when the person who's supposed to be your safe comforter is actually the one creating the stress and fear. So if you think about, say, domestic violence or abuse, you know, I'm the lovely husband. It's usually a man, not always, but often. And I love you, darling. I'm going to love bomb you. But then I'm going to turn and get very angry and frighten you. But then the next day I'll come back with flowers. I'm really sorry. You know, I'm really oh, do love you. And that's going to be a cycle. And this is the same cycle that happens in cults. And why it's problematic, it's not so bad if you have a way out. If you're not isolated in that, you can go and get help outside of that relationship. But if you're isolated in that, you're going to feel the stress and you're of this person frightening you, and you're going to need comfort. And you've evolved to go to that person who's the only person available because you've been a you've been isolated to seek comfort. So instead of getting away from the fear and the stress, you're approaching it in a failed attempt to get comfort. Now that's crazy making. To put it more scientifically, that causes dissociation because you become in a situation that attachment theorists call fright without solution. You're approaching fear. You have no other way out. So that's the emotional glue that keeps people in these relationships. They have nowhere else to turn, but they've evolved to try to seek comfort. So they keep going back and back and back, trying to get those endogenous opioids to help their cortisols go down. And a good abuser, <laughs> so to speak, will occasionally be nice to keep that feeling that, oh, I might get comfort here if I stick around. That's the kind of really sneaky part about this, is it's unclear to the person involved that you are never going to get, all you're going to get is fear. Because occasionally they're going to say, oh, but I really love you. That's the function of the flowers in the next day. So the person gets glued, and then that gluing you in this fright without solution has the cognitive effect of dissociation. You're in a state of what I call chronic relational trauma. And when we're in trauma, we know from good studies of trauma by people like Alan Shaw that the piece of your brain that helps you think about what's happening critically, if you're in trauma, that little piece doesn't function well. And you can't go up to your frontal cortex that does your clever judgment, logical thinking. You stay in your kind of just your frightened um, 
emotion part of your brain where you can't think clearly. So you have, in summary, in a isolated, fearful relationship with a charismatic person who is claiming, or group, who is claiming to be good and nice, even though they're actually always frightening you or stressing you, you have that creates an emotional bond, and it and that bond to a frightening figure creates dissociation because it's chronic trauma. You have, so to resolve that, you have to somehow find a place where you can integrate your mind again to make those critical judgments that say, whoops, this is actually really dangerous. I should get out of here. Now, I'll illustrate that with my own story. Now, here I was in this group, miserable mostly, not all the time, but mostly, for 10 years. And finally, the group, the leader was actually in running away from the law because of this killing and then in jail. So he let up the pressure for a while. And as I said before, you don't want to do that. People might find their way out. And while that pressure was let up, we had time. And I started going on walks with a fellow member of the group, which normally would never be able to just go on a walk. And one day she said to me, so-and-so, her husband and I, think there's some problems in the group. We think there's some power problems with the leadership. And I more or less just burst into tears and hugged her. And I mean, people come out in different ways and this happens. I don't want to say everyone has this experience, but for me, the experience was that I immediately kicked in my critical thinking. It was an extraordinary experience. Didn't mean I could figure it all out, but it's almost like physically I could feel I could access that part of my brain, go, yeah, I know. <laughs> and and then we started talking, you know, and I wanted to reflect on what you said about that guy looking at his reflection because I thought that was fascinating because as human beings, and Hannah Arendt talks about this as well, the way we understand our world is socially. We can't understand our world as an individual hidden away from everyone else. We understand it like you and I are doing today. We're talking to each other, trying to understand something. When you're isolated in a cult, you're not as we know, you're not allowed to talk to other people about the experience, about your doubts. So you need that reflection, that validation from someone else in order to, as preferably a safe person, like this colleague of mine was, so that you can think. Her, her asking me that gave me validation and a feeling of safety so that I could reintegrate my brain and start thinking. And I wonder if the person you talked to who looked at themselves in the mirror, in a way, in the, in the reflection of the glass, that was kind of a way of reflecting himself to himself and going, what would he think? And it's Hannah Arendt talks about this, that we need other people, but we also need to talk to ourselves. And in a cult, we can't do that. She calls it the two-in-one, that we we need that socially, but we also have to have that internal dialogue. And this wonderful guy in Minneapolis, Doug Agustin, who helped me when I first got out, he was helping run a support group. He always talked about this triple isolation in a cult, that you're isolated from the outside world, you're isolated from those in the cult because you're not allowed to speak 
your real experience to them. And he said you're isolated from your own internal dialogue because you can't, you're not even allowed to think your doubts. So that moment for me was my internal dialogue just boom, came back. It's incredible. It's so powerful to know also the message is it's still there. It's a very important thing to know about yourself that it's just been either covered over or you've been encouraged to be disengaged from it, but you haven't lost that ability and that that you can come back to it. I think having somebody to talk to who validates, who is saying what you've been thinking and what you've shelved, all the doubts, all the negativity, all the things that you've been told to doubt. Yes, it makes it all come back, I think, and you suddenly have this place to land back on earth. It's a very difficult thing to look at, but yes, it doesn't surprise me that you cried. I think just the relief and the release of that moment of not needing to kind of keep pushing these things at bay, keeping them away, keeping them away, which takes its own strength. And you could just relax and have it flood back and see really what you've seen. I have that in the support group that I run where people also for the first time have had a chance to say something and have it be verified, have the experience of other people nodding their heads and it um, they haven't had it for years, sometimes decades, but there is something so powerful. I mean, I, I think about this within cults, within controlling relationships, that you can often find out what your most powerful skills are, i.e. the thing that threaten someone trying to control you the most by evaluating or making a list of all the things they want to take away from you. And communication, communication with the self, negative thinking, all of that is one of the first things that's taken away, I think, because it is so powerful and it's still, and it's ever present. It just gets, it's like a radio that you just turned off, but still, it's, there's still someone talking if you just have a chance to turn it back on. I mean, the thing about that yourself was already there is an interesting one because I'm sure, like you, I've been working increasingly with people born into cults or raised in cults, and that's a much more complicated problem. I think for people who joined as adults, it is pretty clear you can go, there's something to go back to, but I think it's much more complicated for that those born or raised, and I and I know and I hope people are going to be doing work understanding that. But I think what is still true of both groups You know, I'm a great believer in reality. I think there is reality. You know, if someone hits me, they may have a view of that and I may have a view of that, but whatever, I got hit and that hurt. That is an important um, kind of bellwether of, (laughs) you know, how to, you kind of have to do reality testing and how to, because we do actually perceive reality. It's just an occult that's deflected through that dissociative process. So with people born and raised, I kind of am interested in having that discussion that, well, how do we reality test? Because that they do have. They have a perception of their reality of how badly they were treated as children, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another piece of this, I guess. And, of course, what's so frightening now not just in America, in the UK as well, where I'm sitting today, is this 
general population disconnection from reality. I lie awake nights terrified by that, I have to say, and I have I don't know how to help that or how to help at a population level. It's very frightening, but I think that's um, what you know we're seeing a lot of the problems we're seeing today um, because of that disconnection from reality. Yeah, I mean when you when you have to have all of these news stations and news apps now that will say, okay, we are not biased, or if this article is leaning in one direction or another, it is this percentage conservative, this percentage liberal, like they need to verify that they have a sense that this is sort of, that they care about being accurate and they care about being honest and truthful and also want to show to what degree something is biased. Most of the world is not that and it's getting farther and farther away from that. And I think it's very hard for people to judge. And it's always been hard for people to judge what's true and what's not. What I wonder about is, you know, that a lot of the people, and then I want to hear about what you've noticed in the UK, because I'm curious about it. But, you know, there are a number of people who you've probably come across too, who were raised in a particular cultic group. That told them, and this is, I think, one of the most difficult things to undo, even though it's not impossible, but it's very difficult, that what you see, the tangible things are not real. The evidence that you take in through your senses, as Margaret Singer used to talk about, is just not something you can trust. And you then only need to, you need to kind of suspend your disbelief about everything and that things that are invisible are the only real things. That was actually something that was taught in a class I went to when I was checking out a particular mystical cult here in LA, where they said that the things that you take in through your senses are not reliable. It's only the things that we guide you to sense in between what your senses are saying, that that's real. I mean, I don't know how you, you know, we're talking about landing. I don't know how you land from that and have a sense that you sort of, that your feet are firmly planted. That takes a lot of doing. Um, What are you noticing in your neck of the woods with people being disconnected from reality? Well, first of all, we have a lot of cults here, you know, which is what I'm trying to explain to people in authority in the UK. So there's that whole layer, but there's, you know, things like Brexit, which were lies. I mean, that was sold on just incredible lies, which people weren't able to understand were lies, have been since proven to be lies. And so now they're proven to be lies. A lot of people are changing their mind. But, you know, we've had a terrible damage since. You know, we are in a terrible situation in the UK, there's terrible poverty. Our health service is collapsing. The schools are understaffed and collapsing. You know, we're really a broken society right now. And, you know, we do get the QAnon stuff that comes over here. We tend to get a lot that comes over from America. We are getting also these extreme right. I mean, we don't have as many guns. We have hardly any guns, thank goodness. But we are getting extreme right thugs which are kind of look like cults. But also, I suppose maybe what's almost more troubling is this whole wellness stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm as much for wellness as the next person. You know, I want to be well. But there's just so much magical thinking about that. 
And that's, you know, we know from work done by people like Mia Bloom in the US, but this, we've had the same phenomena here, that that's uh, been very much a way in for QAnon and for the far right. And ecofascism is another one that the environmental movement, which of course is so important. So all these things that are super important, but also become ways that basically cultic groups can start finding a way in. Um, so someone who might really care about, you know, being vegetarian. I mean, the famous thing is, you know, to say that Hitler was vegetarian, which is true. But, you know, just being vegetarian doesn't make it all right. Be careful who is saying that and who you're associating with, because there are, you know, as they say, some of my best friends are vegetarians. <laughs> but there are groups that are using that kind of thing as a way to hook people in to unhealthy groups and unhealthy relationships to those groups. This whole effective altruism stuff, which you probably run into, which is hard for me to understand, but we're getting that here as well, which seems to me, and that's people like Musk and the PayPal guy and all these big, rich names, but we're getting that here where, you know, we can sacrifice the present and the people in the present for these long-term survival of our um, specially bred, intelligent people who are going to long-term, it's also called long-termism, save us all. But meanwhile, we're sacrificing those of us who aren't good enough and who are not worth keeping. And it's kind of has a little genocidal ring to it, frankly. Um, but it can look good on the outside. You know, that's what's so frightening. So that's what, these are all things that I know you have in the US and we have here as well, where people start getting really confused about what is really going on behind these things that sound good. And so then, you know, what I like to say is you then have to look at beyond the words at what the actions are and what they're demanding of you and are they isolating you are they making you use every minute of the day in their group are they saying they're the only answer and are they keeping you kind of stressed and frightened you know that's kind of my recipe for uh, a cult <laughs> those are among all the other warning signs that i'm sure people on the podcast have talked about yeah and, you know, there is a lot right now happening in the world that feels beyond people's control, which is going to trigger so many people to want to gain a sense of control and predictability. They want to be able to have a greater sense, I think, of a vision that matches their wishes and a predictable trajectory in the future, whatever that means, because now things are so unpredictable. During COVID, of course, there were so many people getting involved in so many things. And the the wellness, well, the billion, billion, billion dollar industry of uh, snake oil has been incredible. I mean, so many people have not gotten the help that they needed because they thought they were getting the help that they needed. That's the thing that really bothers me with the delays, especially for children. Like the anti-vax stuff, you know, it's like people truly believing that the vaccination was going to hurt them and not being able to look at the evidence that vaccinations actually help. And 
if someone says to them, well, you know, and that, and this is going on in this country right now as well, you know, all this examples of people who died right after the vaccination. But it's really not evidenced. I mean, there may have been some people who died after the vaccination, but it's nothing compared to who died from COVID, you know. And, you know, I don't know how you intervene to help people understand what is disinformation and misinformation. Although there are very good scholars working on that. I mean, it's not what I do, but people like Stephen Lewandowski and Cynthia, oh, I'm going to get her name wrong, Miller Idris or Idris Miller. You know, there are very good people working on that. Thank goodness. Because we really need to be working on how to help people determine what is good information that's reality-based, not someone's invented Bill Gates's microchip into your bloodstream. We we really have to work on that because it's very, very dangerous when you have a population that doesn't know fact from fiction. Again, that's a Hannah Arendt concept. So just as we're finishing up, I mean, I think what's also interesting, I'm sure you've seen this too, is that there are a lot of people who when they had the chance to leave a group or leave a relationship, leave a community, they could talk about how they really felt and the position they really took on something. And I know there are a lot of people who have said to me they couldn't be pro-vax and they could, they just couldn't because their family wouldn't tolerate it, their community, their church, their whatever it was, political movement. But it isn't really how they actually felt, but they couldn't get it, they couldn't access it, they couldn't do it for their children. So I think there are a lot of people who are who are needing to sublimate, they're needing to go along with things that really are not there's their thoughts and what they think makes actual sense for themselves and for their families. And I I want people to be able to be free to do what they know at the end of the day, makes them feel right and is in line with their conscience or in line with facts. Um, But it goes back, I think, to that idea of attachment and connection for a lot of people. They just, you know, I don't don't know. It's a risk for some people they're not willing to take, which is all adds to this mix. So thank you so much for your time for all your work. Where can people find your books, your work, you know, the trust, all of it? Um, well, my books, the first one, the memoir is Inside Out, it's called. And the one that's more, I consider more important, but talks more generally about cults is called Terror, Love and Brainwashing. And they're available at bookstores. You can order them. You can go to the ugly online site whose name we dare not speak but you can order them and some libraries will have terror love and brainwashing uh, my website is just my name alexandrastain.com and the uh, charity i work with the website is thefamilysurvivaltrust.org you can feel free to contact us or me individually and um it's been a pleasure it has been a real pleasure i hope we get to do it again One more thing before you go. It is so powerful to have Alexandra Stain on the show. She's someone who I've known for many years. We haven't had the chance to spend 
as much time actually together as I would like, but we have appreciated each other and each other's devotion to this and to sharing what we can with the community and providing a service. We're similar in a lot of ways, and it's so nice to speak with her. And I love how smart she is, how down-to-earth she is. And uh, if you have an opportunity to read any of her books or to ever see a video recording of a lecture of hers, please do, please do, please do. She's wonderful. One of the things that we talked about that comes up a lot in the work that I do, in the support group that I do, and by the way, if you are interested in being a part of a former cult member support group or a support group for people who are coming out of controlling and emotionally manipulative relationships, or if you have a family member you're trying to reach out to who is in something like this or has come out and you want to know how to help them, please be in contact. And you can go to my website, actually, at rachelbernsteintherapy.com to sign up for the support group. Just as an aside, I make sure to talk to everyone before they get involved, as we've had problems in the past uh, with cults trying to infiltrate, especially Scientology, because that's what they do. And the fact that they get tax-exempt status still as a church blows my mind, and it's really wrong. That's my little soapbox in the middle of all of this. But that's why I screen people before they get involved in the group so that people can be as safe as possible sharing. And it's a wonderful experience for people to talk. So to go back to what I was going to say about Alexandra and what she brought up, many times with my clients and with the people in the support group, they talk about attachment, that being raised in a cult, everyone was their parent or no one was their parent. They just didn't have the usual attachments to primary caregivers that were nurturing, that were predictable, as Alexandra said, that were calming to the nervous system in that way. And knowing also what a healthy, safe relationship is, is so important because that helps you define what kind of relationship to get in after you leave. Even if it's not that you were born and raised, but you got involved in a cultic group and during potentially your formative years of development and knowing how to relate to people as an adult, this is the guidance that you got that you should somehow give everything over to someone and not expect anything in return or that somehow it's okay to expect and accept abusive behavior, that somehow it's okay for you to not have any emotions, but to take care of somehow everyone else's or to accommodate to theirs and make them feel okay, not make them feel upset while you are busy being very upset and kind of emotionally manipulated and or abandoned. And also that you are somehow not supposed to have any boundaries and that that's what makes a successful relationship, that you're never supposed to say no. So all of these are perversions of what is healthy. Years ago, and I mean years ago, <laughs> this is when they handed me a recording of my talk on a VCR tape. So oh, I think that dates that. When I was on Larry King a couple of times, one of the times was about Warren Jeffs 
the FLDS leader of Compound, uh, he's now in jail. The other was about the Children of God, a group that I've heard about for many, many years. And in fact, one of my first cases in, in the early 90s was a Children of God case. And it blew my mind, especially being new to just studying this field. But what blew my mind was how much the parents needed to participate in endangering their children, endangering especially their daughters, and that the wives were not any safer than the daughters, and that they needed to do this, what was called flirty fishing, where they were supposed to give of their bodies to bring in new members to this group run by this awful sexual abuser and really horrible man who is now no longer, but that this group still exists to varying degrees around the world. One of the things that I remember talking about on the Larry King show, and every once in a while an idea pops into your head and you think, hmm, that's actually that's actually a good way to say it. And I think I was just nervous being uh, un- knowing that the lights were on me and the camera was on me and it was one of my first media experiences, but still I had the wherewithal to say that sometimes it is within cultic groups that the caregivers are the ones who let the monsters in at night and also during the day and sometimes become the monsters themselves, not in terms of their character, but in terms of the ones who frighten the children or don't protect them or who make it okay somehow for them to be abused. And this doesn't mean that a caregiver who lets their child be abused or uh, abandoned emotionally or physically in any way are bad people. It doesn't mean that they're characterologically flawed and not capable of being good caregivers, not capable of learning how, or not capable, given their own ability to set the rules for their children and the parameters and the guidelines and the boundaries for their children, that they wouldn't do it right. But within a system like a cult, you really can feel like you don't have the power to protect. You don't have the right to protect your loved ones. Or you can become convinced that it's in their best interest, that it's for their spiritual good, that it's somehow, as it is often entitled within a group, that they've been specially chosen and you should feel happy or proud. Or you are so defamed by the leader and maybe by the other people in the group, and made to feel that you are going to cause irreparable damage to your child if you act as that parent, if you step in, because you just simply don't know how to do it, quote-unquote, right. And so it's best if you step aside and let others take over. That's a very difficult thing for a parent. Sometimes it's very difficult to come back from that. You can feel a great amount of shame. You can feel a great amount of guilt that you did step aside. But it happens even in relationships with people who have been gaslit by controllers to make them feel like they are a lesser person or they are a bad parent and that the controller is the one who knows how to do it right. So they shouldn't step in for their children. They shouldn't protect them. They shouldn't be the ones to set the rules. They shouldn't be the ones to have a say over their children. It's usually the victims, the parent who's been victimized in that situation, who is actually the better parent, who is the kinder person, who is the more intuitive person. But they have been so broken down 
and cast aside, that it becomes impossible for them to step in those shoes, and sometimes there's punishment if they do, if they have a voice. It's a terrible situation to put everyone in, and that's why I'm so happy when people break free from it and parents have a chance to reconcile with children as much as is possible at any given time after. But for the ones to feel guilt that it is the parent somehow who has, quote-unquote, let the monsters in or who has, quote-unquote, abandoned their child, that's usually not what they would have done, again, without the pushing of the cult, without being in that environment, without being so broken down in every way. And so I salute all people who have reached out to their loved ones in any direction, reaching out to parents, reaching out to children, reaching out to anyone and saying, "Mm, this is something that happened to us. And let's heal together from this. Let's acknowledge it and heal together, but know who the real enemy is. And it's not either one of us. So Thank you, thank you so much to Alexandra and for her wisdom and her time. And I truly hope to be able to speak with her again soon. Take good care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.